Good afternoon. Rex. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to see you beside me rather than in front of me. Why is that? Why is that? We've got a guest today. We have we have a guest and uh, we're in a small cubby hole. It's a small captain's table. You look a bit uncomfortable. You're okay with this? You're okay with this close proximity? I'm not moving an inch. Okay, great. Okay, fine. How's your week been? Okay? Very good. Very busy. Very busy, but uh, it's gone quick. So uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's good. We nearly, it's nearly finished, so we can start again. And uh, we have a guest today. We've got our first guest in the new captain's table with better sound. So exactly. there's no excuses. Yeah, welcome, Guy. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to be here. Guy Nata, Coca-Cola CEO, Arena. Arena. Great to have you yeah. here. So we're clear on the difference between the product and the building. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. CEO yeah. Arena, yeah. No, it's great to have you on board, Guy. And... Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about yourself and coming New Zealand are coming to Dubai, and it's yep. a, it's quite a resume. So uh, looking forward to it. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to uh, share on the captain's table and uh, have a bit of a chat. Yeah. Well, um, where should we start? Well, I mean, kind of normally, we, what mm. we say is, um, you know, uh, where did it all start? Mm. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, as though it's some kind of Freudian interpretation about your childhood. <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, a bit of background about you in New Zealand, and mm-hmm. um, if you're happy to share that, and just uh, just talk about a few things about how you started to get in the business, and uh, we'll take it from there, I guess. Sure. Mm. I mean, it's a little bit like a Billy start of a Billy Joel concert, isn't it? Where Billy gets up and says, you know, I'm sorry Billy can't make it tonight, but he, I'm his dad. I think the photo you shared earlier of a 10 years much younger me probably <laughs> suggests that I'm, I'm, I'm the relative of that person. Um but look, my, my journey is, uh, you know, uh, born and bred in New Zealand. Um, I, I kind of accidentally got into what I'd call the entertainment or facilities management side of the business. Um, a number of years ago, I was involved with sport. I used to work for the Auckland Rugby Union uh, in the days when they were a, a mighty and fearful organisation. I've had some challenges along the way since. Um, but I'll declare my roots here and now being very much blue and white uh, from an Auckland perspective. <laughs> well, hold on a minute. I'm just going to go. It's going to be a show. Well, this, is, this studio was designed for the Crusaders. So yeah, uh, unfortunately. Apologies. Unfortunately, I did yeah. notice on the way in. It kind of almost stopped me in my tracks. Um, so that, what year What year was that? Yeah, so I left Auckland Rugby in 2003. Okay. Um, I'd been with the union for about five years prior to that time. Uh, worked from the, in the Auckland Rugby Union side of things, not necessarily the blues or the professional side. It was very much in a, in a coaching development type role mm-hmm. back then. Um, and that was my first kind of real job post-university. I had a bit of a mixed bag, spent some time in the UK abroad, um, hadn't finished studying at that point. Right. Came back, finished my studies, um, and then ended up working for Auckland Rugby and kind of fell in. It was always rugby was kind of my background and played a bit um, and enjoyed it and got involved with the coaching side of it and really loved that and, and quickly realised that, you know, unless you're an all-black in New Zealand back then, the pathway to coaching and rugby was pretty limited. So um, I uh, back in 2003, I, I resigned from a what was a, a job that, Everyone in my family thought was great and, and all my mates and my whole life was talking rugby, involved with rugby and you could never escape rugby. To Trust Stadium. Right. Trust Stadium. Yeah, which was a, a building which was under construction uh, based in Waitakere City. Mm-hmm. Um, good friend of mine, his mum said, I think you'll be great at this job. It's mm-hmm. an operations manager for a, an under construction venue. Yeah. And I was like, I wonder what an operations manager does in a venue. Um, so I reached out to a guy that I, I thought very highly of as a bit of a mentor, a guy called Murray Reed, who was the operations manager at Eden Park. Had had a bit to do with Murray when I was at Auckland Rugby and 
gave him a call, said, I can come see you, Murray, and can you tell me what you do for a job yeah. and what that means? Um, and he kind of sat down and, and here's what I do, he said, and, you know, what we're kind of managing in terms of the process and went through a interview process. I started on the Monday at Trust Stadium and the CEO left on the Tuesday um, through issues I won't get into. Um, but you didn't know? I didn't know he was leaving. No, I was kind of going in to see this guy and part of his exec team or management team and, and then the next day he was out the door, you know, so... He grabbed um, his hat and coat and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was me and then the finance manager and we, we did everything from kind of trying to book activity and to cleaning bathrooms and washing windows and putting carpet tiles on the floor yeah. and sitting at basketball courts and everything in between, so... Because it was, it was home of the breakers, wasn't it? Yeah, breakers were based there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah breakers, breakers were based there. We had the, the Auckland-based netball franchise based there as well. Yeah. Um, and Waitakere City Rugby Club was based there as well. Mm. So it was a 5,000 capacity venue, okay. which was predominantly focused on community activity, but then there was some anchor tenant sporting activity. And then also it was, you know, an event centre looking at... So, so would that be like two or three times a week? Yes, or...? Um, yeah, in some respects. Yeah. When Breakers were in season, they were playing, you know, home games every home week. Home Netball home. team were playing kind of sure. pretty regularly as well. Yeah. We were trying to then supplement kind of other major event activity. K1 boxing was a, a, okay. boxing was a big deal back then at the time yeah. and kind of the precursor in some ways to kind of UFC and... Um, so, you know, we had a, a, those guys in the building quite often. The National Kennel Club was our first event in the building, the dog show, uh, you know, with uh, 2,000 odd dogs. And was that a shit show as well? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You know, we had an evacuation of the building. Oh, Our okay. alarm started going. We right. probably didn't have an emergency management plan at the time. And I was on the PA saying, please get out. And people were scrambling to get their dogs. And there was actually there was no emergency. It was just one of those. It was very positive. Yes. Yeah. Um, you don't know that at the time, right? Uh, so a good, a good leading. But all the dogs got out safely. Yeah, the dogs no, got out safely. Yeah, the dogs were harmed. For canine loving listeners. That's yeah, yeah no, the, the, there's no dogs hurt in this filming, right? Um, <laughs> which is important. So. Like it was a, it was a, for me it was a, it was a great, um, you know, learning the ropes of, of venue management from from the ground up in a lot of ways. You sure. know, booking content and everything in between, and um, stakeholder relationships, and you know, just trying to trying to do what we could on a daily basis. We probably weren't particularly strategic. You know, um, we were just very getting the nuts and bolts of the business kind of functioning and operating. So we were thinking too far ahead. Did you tell the learning curve and everything, and like doing everything from one end to the to the other that must have been pretty good right yeah it gave you a good yeah. core basis and yeah. and and you know what we do even now you know there's i i probably like to think i have a fairly kind of reasonable understanding of the operational side of our business and uh hard to pull the wool over so it, it has that too yeah. which helps you know um yeah. so you know from there as i drive to work each day they were building this new what I thought was a stadium, station or facility on the waterfront in Auckland. Um, and I became very curious about what was going on there. That's kind of a, a, who I am in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I, I, I took an opportunity to introduce myself to the team that were operating that venue. It wasn't open, so under construction. I invited one of the guys actually to a, a, a breakers game at Trust Stadium. Sure. Um, knew where he was sitting, gave him the tickets. Followed him on camera through CCTVs. He kind of came into the building, watched him sit down in the seats. Miraculously, there was a spare seat next to him, which I sat in, um, uh, and uh, and kind of went through trying to convince them that I was the right person to join their team. 
joined the team at uh, at Victor and in, in Super Victor Arena in 2006. So what? <laughs> yeah, I must have been a little unrelenting, perhaps. Um, but there's a message out there for people pursuing yeah. careers as well. Um, and I, I came on board as the uh, um, operations manager at the Arena and Victor Arena at the time, and. Um, we were a little bit delayed in opening. Uh, we were intending to open kind of three months after I came on board. It was the kind of the timeline, but it ended up being not quite a year, almost a year in terms okay. of getting construction completion. And uh, the company that I worked for, QPAM, which was QPAC Arena Management, owned and operated by the Jacobson family out of Australia, a major promoter of business in Australia and video operator, um, in partnership with Auckland Council. So we carried all the operational risk, and, and the company still does for a period of 40 years from construction mm-hmm. timeline. Um, and, and I transitioned from that role, events and operations, into the CEO role um, not long after we opened. We opened with two back-to-back Red Hot Chili Peppers shows. Um, the then CEO had taken on a new role overseas. I, I met with him and the, the chairman, Kevin Jacobson, and we talked about me stepping into that role. And um, Bruce McTaggart, who was a great mentor and, and friend in the CEO capacity, he had show one and three hot chili peppers, and I had show two the next night. Right. Um, There's an interesting kind of anecdote about that show. We, we uh, were working on the, the, the porridge rights in New Zealand, which can be a little interesting in terms of what product you might have available for consumers. Okay, okay. Um, and we end up going with an Australian company, <coughs> the team from Foster's, not oh. one of the New Zealand brands. I'm which, sure that went down. Well, at the time, neither of the New Zealand companies took us particularly seriously. Um, and the team from Australia, they did. And on the first night, we thought we had enough product to get through two shows of Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. We sold everything for night one. Uh, we had to call, I had to make a call at two o'clock in the morning after the, the first show. Uh, the second show was on a Sunday. Um, and call the managing director in New Zealand saying, hey, you need to open your warehouse to yeah. deliver the same amount of product you delivered last week for tonight's show because we, we were out. And he said it would be my absolute delight to do that. <laughs> so on a Sunday, a number of lorries or trucks turned up and we went through it again. But um, look, Victor was, uh, Victorine was a... a, a, a a legitimate, you know, international kind of multi-purpose arena based in Auckland and still is. Um, you know, became very much part of that Australian touring touring cycle and, and was, was was great for us as a team. And um, going back to that point before, you're saying about forage. Do you come down to calculate roughly how much per person should be intake and stuff? Yeah, you base it typically on the type of audience you, you are going to see or the type of event will take more oh, audience typically. So some crowds are... Dog owners apparently you just <laughs> smash it. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, when you get, let's call uh, a genre mature pop or mature, well, mature rock, that is a crowd that will challenge you in that space. Right. You know, they've got disposable income. Typically. Yeah, sure. Um, they want to make a, a good night of it and have a lot of fun. Um, it's an R&B crowd's not great right. in our experiences okay. in the past, um, okay. and that, that aligns to merchandising as well. A, a similar kind of numbers roll out. Country's good. Yeah. Uh, country crowd come in and, and, and have a good old, good old time. But you see, it's funny what you say about that because there's a very fine line between the mature rock audience and just that few years extra. I remember going to see Simon and Garfunkel at Hyde Park and that, there were coach loads of Derby and Joan people coming in from all over the country and 
all I could see was a constant flow of all the people going to and from the loos all the time. Yeah. So they probably weren't drinking that much because they were spending so long queuing in the bloody tunnies to be able to get any starts. It's the hierarchy of needs, isn't it? And <laughs> yeah. venue, you yeah. got to get to the bathroom before you can get to the concession before you buy the merchandise, you know. So, um, look, all, all Victorina was, was incredible. Yeah. We had a fantastic name rights partner and mm. ownership group. They really empowered me to, to, to make some decisions in terms of how we shaped the business. We became a lot more strategic in terms of our thinking versus previous roles. Um, and I was there for, you know, a little over four years. Um, really enjoyed the progression into that, that more senior role, um, dealing with a lot of really experienced Aussie promoters that we, we typically work with and, and great New Zealand promoters too um, to try and create this really exciting kind of um, entertainment offering in New Zealand and, and Auckland really you know bats above its weight in terms of entertainment and New Zealand does in, in so many ways um, you know you look at the size of an Auckland audience Auckland was about 1.4 million at the time so not a particularly big city but you know we were selling you know my kind of final year there 500,000 600,000 tickets you know which is for that market really really significant um, and then from there I I um, I moved to China, I moved to Shanghai in, in 2010 um, with AEG um, in a venue called the St. Ben's Arena, sure. um, joint venture between the NBA, AEG, uh, based out of Los Angeles and AEG China team, mm -hmm. um, and Shanghai Media Group is our, our um, majority shareholder based there in, in Shanghai, and we were operating as the world Chinese, uh, Shanghai World Expo Culture Centre for six months. Mm -hmm. Before we then transitioned into Mercedes Benz Arena proper in November 2010. So I always akin it to being the, the softest, the hardest soft opening of a, a building sure. We were 184 consecutive days, 16 hours a day, yeah. 8 million visitors through the building in that six month period. Um, and we, we, you know, we had, um, door handles that would, would pass their, their, their shelf life, you know, they're used by date because they've been used so often. We had, um, wow. you know, just hinges that were no longer working on doors. Just pure numbers as well. Just volume. Yeah, just sure. volume. I think you were talking earlier on when we touched on this before, you were talking about the numbers of people that were local but pretty much more than a whole year or something. In all the, you said the population? Yeah, so the Pudong was the side of the river that we were on, yeah. uh, which is um, east and west sides of, of the river in Shanghai. Yeah. More people live on that side of the river than live in, in New Zealand. And so from a, a, a guy that, you know, I lived overseas a little bit yeah. in the UK when I was younger and, and, and travelled a little bit, that is quite intimidating initially um, to get you around that. Um, but, you know, Shanghai is an amazing city, a really progressive city in a lot of ways. Um, it was very, very ambitious. It was, you know, the World Expo for Shanghai was the equivalent of Beijing's Olympics in right. 2008, you know, and that very kind of opening up to the world and, you know, Shanghai in so many ways had always been the most international of cities mm. in mainland China. Mm. Um, if you look back to the history of Shanghai and how it's it's evolved and changed and then went quiet for a period of time, as we all kind of know that story, um, you know, and then and then kind of came out of that and, and just just incredible. The, the sure. scale, the volume, you know, you never felt you were in, in a market that was in mainland China. It was, it was yeah. driven and, and things can happen at a speed, or could happen and still can, at a speed that was, which I wasn't prepared for initially, but, but became accustomed to over time. So, um, another steep learning curve. Mm. Yeah, there's been plenty. There's been plenty. Um, it could be challenging, yeah. Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it could be challenging, I guess, on um, you know, making a decision sometimes 
took time to galvanise, I guess, the thinking of a, a, a tripartite agreement from a shareholder point of view. But once that decision was reached and, and moved forward, you know, we, we moved forward at a pretty breakneck speed. So, you know, content was driven around international touring was probably about 15%. Back then, you know, it was very much mainland driven, mainland K-pop, um, uh, you know, Canto pop, uh, J pop, etc. In terms of the activity in the market, a lot of great deal of Western talent, obviously. Yeah, no, no, but but it was starting to build. You know, yeah. and there'd be periods of time where you'd see it surge, and then then it would soften for a while, and then kind of come again. So we worked really close with the team at AG Presents in terms of what they were doing, mm. um, and a little bit tough in that market in many ways too, because not too many promoters worked across the whole country. So you were kind of dealing with very much Shanghai-driven promoters, albeit there might be acts coming in and playing in, in, in the north and in Beijing or in the south and kind of Guangzhou and those areas, you know. So, um, but fabulous building, you know, there was this integration of an 18,000-seat arena with a 1,000-seat nightclub um, with an ice skating rink in the basement with about um, 40,000 square metres of mixed retail space. We had a multiplex cinema in the roof, which had wow. 640 seats in there, um, seven restaurants upstairs. So it was this really... Mixed vertical integration of, of activity, and um, when the Chinese partner went and looked at a number of different, mm. you know, venues around the world, and O2 Arena is, is one of the obviously iconic venues that AG owns and operates mm. um, in Staples Centre in LA. They kind of took a lot of those different component parts and said, well, "We want what they've got, and we want what they've got in LA, but we want to integrate the whole thing sure. vertically." Mm which is challenging to operate because the design around the building was, well, just let people flow wherever they want to go. Right. Not <laughs> quite so easy. And been all connected by a metro or... Yeah, metro came in. In and out. In the basement. Very um, easy. During Expo, metro didn't run into the building because yeah. you have to have those ticketing control around it. Yeah. Um, but now the metro terminates downstairs and, and links up and that, that precinct has is, is evolved. You know, that Expo finished you know, over 10 years ago and 12 years ago now. Um, Stereo, so... China was a mystery and a lottery, and in some ways, what I know about what I knew about China then doesn't count for now. It was a cash society back then. Mm-hmm. You know, people had phones, but there was no sure. AliPay, there was no WeChat Pay, there yeah, was right. none of that kind of activity happening in the market. And all of a sudden, overnight, it changed to this digital kind of environment where shop vendors on the sides of streets selling snacks at two o'clock in the morning were zip dipping, you know, on their phones to, to process payments. So. Um, has changed enormously. You know, live music scene is still progressing in a lot of ways in terms of, of China. And China is reflective that, you know, there's not many promoters that work across it as, as a unified region. They're all independent of, of where they're based. From and and to this day, are they still very restrictive of the, the talent that can come through, the Western talent, for example? Yeah, look, I think you've got to understand that um, that was established well before people were starting to tour, you know. So there was really strong controls around permitting and licensing of artists. Um, Everyone that works in that space knows it, but, but it is pretty tough uh, in terms of where someone might have been outspoken about a certain particular political matter. Um, and and it's pretty clear either yes or no. Yeah, right. You <laughs> and, and you move on. Yeah. And you move on. You know, and some companies have had some really tough times on some artists taking liberties in that market right. um, to probably prove a, yeah, prove a political point. Um, and use that sounding board, which okay, they get on a plane and they leave, but you've got someone that's established a, a business over a long time that, that suffers on the back of it. So, mm. you know, um, we've all got to be very careful in, in, in every industry and every, every market that we're yeah, yeah, sure. about how, how people might behave. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But equally, you can't control that too. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. you've got to, um, they say, swing away sometimes, right? Yeah. And so how long was that for, uh, for you? I mean, that sounds like a pretty tough and intense um, role that you had. Uh, for a, a oh, it was while. great too. You know, and I loved it yeah. in so many ways. Um, yeah, I was there for just over four years in, in Shanghai um, and then moved to Sydney. So again, totally different. Um, moved to run uh, what was then Kiosk Bank Arena, which is now, sorry, what? Was then Orphans Arena, which is now Kiosk Bank Arena, based out of Melbourne, Sydney Olympic Park. Um, so okay. part of the Olympic development in 2000. So 21,000 seat arena, um, and and really vibrant in live music. So a, a kind of an anchor stop on that live music kind of touring through Australasia. If you look at the the must play markets in those regions, Melbourne and Sydney are absolutely two of them. And you know it depends whether you play Adelaide or, or Perth more and more so now. Um, Brisbane, Auckland, or forwards that mix, but okay. Sydney, Sydney, Melbourne were the two that you, you had to be in because of the size of the populace. So, um, moved into um, effectively my first role of an ongoing business, a business that had been established for um, you know kind of thirteen years prior to me getting there. Um, whereas prior to that, everything had been greenfields, so it had been startup more or less. So it was really different. So I went into a team that I wasn't involved with recruiting um, or, or training or kind of, I guess, having my influence on um, or a, a cultural influence that we were trying to create to inheriting a team that kind of did things a certain way. And so I had to stop, step back and kind of kind of learn about them for a little bit and then learn about me and then try to implement some change, I guess. Um, and I kick out the ones you didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> No, I hear you. I mean, I think there was a bit of change that went on, you know, yeah, not, change, not, change. not long after, after starting, but um, I think they were just trying to reposition some of the um, the, the interest of the business, you know. Um, so, look, I, Sydney was was, was great, um, you know, really, really busy building. You know, we were doing uh, a million tickets a year, you know, more or less. Um, you know, shows that were coming through were, were every international artist you can probably name were touring and, you know, multiple shows and One Direction were huge at the time. We had eight One Direction shows. You yeah. know, we had Beyonce play four nights. We had Michael Bublé play four nights. We had Pink play seven yeah, nights. Yeah, I was going to say, what is the fascination, and she's a fantastic artist, but Australians love Pink, don't mm. they? Mm. And it's, it's not like, it's like, should we do 10 or... Or twelve shows. Well, yeah, I mean, back in gosh, I want to say 2015, yeah. she played more nights in Melbourne than she played in North America on that tour. Yeah. She played 19 nights in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, 63 dates yeah, yeah. for that tour, um, and shows that were selling out. She was going to another market, coming back, sure. playing another five. It's so funny that you find certain talent yeah. that is liked in certain places so my wife's Irish and she said that Garth Brooks apparently is loved yeah. in Ireland yeah. the yeah. country crowd and he goes and plays like four or five days on the trot at the showgrounds yeah. or something yeah. in, uh, in Dublin so it, it, it is it's so funny that the way you pick up certain things and I think they're like uh, Billy Joel yeah that was a it's a it's a funny joke how they were talking yeah. about who is this guy Billy Joel no one knew and then they sort of that on the piano yeah yeah exactly yeah. I, I think maybe she just got into the psyche and continues yeah. to do show to do so there um, and it's the same with Food Fighters too isn't it is yeah. yeah 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the Australian live touring market is is huge. You know, yeah, yeah. The Australians will get out, they'll be involved, they'll buy tickets to shows. Um, if you look at, you know, Ed Sheeran and the numbers that he was doing, right, I mean, he was doing crazy numbers every year, mm-hmm. fair. Um, but enormous ticket volumes in that market. Yeah. Um, look, I think in some ways it's a it's a market that's really diverse as well. Mm. You know, as Kiwis, sometimes we see Australians as being of a type, mm. um, and that's not a, that's not a negative. Um, but it is really diverse. And the country music scene in Australia too is enormous. You know, you look at Tamworth and yeah, in there and yeah, right, and, right. and a, in a beyond the, the seaboard. Mm. Um, and where we were based out west, you know, it was pretty easy for people from the Blue Mountains to go and get into us. And so yeah, yeah. the country crowds as well were, you know, everyone come in the 10 gallon hats and the boots and Brilliant. and there's a certain type of product they drink that night. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, the, she just got under people's skin in a good way. She's the same artist on day 63 as she is on day one. You know, she right. gives her all. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said about an artist that. People can see, you know, I've, I've, okay, I've paid decent money for a ticket, but I've, I've left having an experience which is, yeah, I, they've given it to me totally in two I, I agree. I had no expectations for her at all. And I happened to be at the uh, at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix a few years back and yeah. she was playing. And uh, we'd had a pretty long day, as you can imagine. And just turning up and thinking, okay, well, we'll go and watch. And then just actually being... I think I say blown away, but she was really yeah. ex- exceptionally good. Yeah. And you yeah. know, when you get to see someone and as good as they are, you realise all of a sudden it's like a light bulb moment. Of course, they're great life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she's a live artist mm. as well. You know, there's a lot of artists out there, or some that are, that are uh, recording artists. She she played her craft live. Mm. Um, you know, and she's got that that live experience and that live show, which she gives her all. You know, she's up for the year. She's yeah. you know, doing the trapeze and everything in between, and people are just staggered by it. You can be sitting in the the tenth row in the in the in the, the nosebleeds, and, and all of a sudden she flies up and she's standing next to you on a on a on a wire, um, you know, having had an amazing experience. So I think that's pretty special for people too that, that they feel totally engrossed in their performance. I'm sure, clearly I'm a bit of a fan. Um, but yeah, so Australia was was wonderful in terms of that, that live music experience and, and music very much at our core um, in that building as well. And then you know, kind of home came calling. Um, I, I headed back to my roots and did this kind of funny navigation of you know Asia Pacific to get back to one side of Eden Park to the other. Um, you know, given we were based as Auckland Rugby in Eden Park those years ago, and, and ended up back as CEO of Eden Park and. You know, what a great privilege that was in so many ways for me. So I've, I've been involved with operating the two kind of major venues in Auckland. Um, British and Irish Lions were, were through in 2017. Um, there was a lot of build-up in terms of that tour, which yeah. is such a such a big deal in yeah. all things rugby in, in New Zealand and, and internationally. And, and what an incredible crowd, you know. So um, we had three, three Lions games, two tests, and then the Blues game as well. And... Um, no disrespect to the good folk that operate the venue in Wellington, but we were very hopeful for a, a, a draw or maybe an all-black loss that we'd never ever talk about mm. hoping for mm. to see a, a final, you know, or a, a kind of final of the series we played the week later at Eden Park, and we got it and it was drawn, which was extraordinary. Yeah. So what was. a final! Yeah. Mm. Um, and we were standing, you know, kind of in the end goal yeah. when we thought there was a penalty. It wasn't a penalty. Um, should have been a penalty. Well, um, it was a penalty. And, <laughs> and then we got bundled into touch and the game was over. I've never been in a venue full of 50,000 people in my life where there was just this silence and uncertainty about, so what, are we going to kick goals? Are we going to play extra yeah. time? Are we going to... Yeah. 
Was there any talk of looking at rule books and stuff like that? Or was there any. No, it was a done deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rick blew the whistle. He was yeah. like, you know, whistle in the sock and yeah. Yeah, kind of, I'm heading for a shower. And <laughs> players were standing there looking at each other, you know. And I think one of the great moments of, well, in, in, in sports, sportsmanship, you know, how those two teams came together. I don't think they really wanted to dig down. Yeah. Um, you know, Jerome Kano kind of got involved and threw his arm around someone. And yeah. Kieran Reid and, uh, you know, um, uh, Sam Borton, you know, as captain of the, yeah. of the team. And, and that's an amazing photo of those two teams the, the together, joint, you know. The joint cup. You know, kind of cup. side by side and holding the cup. And, yeah, that doesn't really happen. It's like, it's not the same as a World Cup. You don't share a World Cup, do you? <laughs> well, as what? Kiwis, we probably hope you did sometimes, you know, <laughs> the recent cricket loss. But, um, yeah. you know, that is what it is. Yeah. But, but I think there is a place for it in sport in a lot of ways because yeah. you get two teams that battle it out and, you know, the, the, the game couldn't decide the winner and maybe it's how it should be sometimes. Um, yeah. But... You know, Seed Park was, was yep. fantastic. Um, brought me back to New Zealand, but I kind of knew deep down there was probably still something else, some, yeah. some unfinished business elsewhere, and the opportunity came in Dubai and mm. moved up here in um, uh, October 2017. And no experience of coming through here before? Or never. Well, I've been here briefly to meet the owner earlier that year. Okay, but you've never kind of been through before going to Europe or anything no. like that? Not no. even a pit stop? Not even so a pit stop. So what were your kind of like, okay, I'm now we get to the, well, it's all interesting, but like to the nitty gritty of where you are now, yeah. what you're doing, and like initial kind of export expectations were they met or did you have none you had no idea what about yeah I guess for me it wasn't the first dance in some ways you know I had that experience abroad and um, probably took a slightly different way of um, transitioning than I might have done in China Um and, you know, you, you further down the track in your career in terms of your knowledge base, et cetera, and kind of comfort in your skin. Um, so it, 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 it was probably close to what I might have expected. Okay. You know, um, a, lot of, a lot of expectation from a very ambitious owner, you know, Miras, um, in terms of the ownership group as they were then. Um, you know, we worked with a team at PXB Entertainment that ran Parks and Resorts. Had it um, been named then by the time? No, no, no. So it was very much under the, the auspice of a, a design kind of... It's a blueprint. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I joined, it was maybe not quite halfway through construction. Um, okay. So our team with an AG technical team had been here from, from day one. That, that contract with AG uh, was signed, I want to say, like at the end of 2015. Um, so, you know, there was... Um, Tilt slab was all done. Pre, precast was up. The roof wasn't on the building. Um, and I was an employee kind of number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was back to that Greenfields startup, growing team, um, you know, selling the sizzle of vision in some ways, um, making sure that we had an ownership group that, that, that understood where we were trying to go as the operator on their behalf. Um, and that's been very much our, our remit, you know, so AEG as it was then, AEG facilities, um, you know, we're, we were AEG Ogden based out of the Australian kind of regional kind of operation. 
Um, you know, our remit is, is, is twofold in some respects. It's either as an operator on behalf of an owner, um, or we've got equity in, in the relationship in, uh, in some type of joint venture. And there's, and there's a couple we own outright. Okay. So, you know, uh, Mr. Anschutz, who is the A in AEG, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you look at Staples Centre, O2 Arena in London, you know, they're, they're AEG assets mm-hmm. um, and not operated necessarily on behalf of, they're owned outright versus others that are joint ventures or operator relationships. So, so how does it work out in my mind? You've got, you've got promoters, obviously, that you know will promote a tour and, and then they're pitching, or indeed, venues are pitching to get them to come through. Yeah. Is it a is it is it like a split revenue sometimes in terms of ticket take or what? yeah I mean t- yeah typically yeah typically um, these are uh, you know two separate contracting relationships. There's the the artist through their their management team um, uh, or the agent will have a relationship with the promoter. Uh, the promoter will carry risk on a number of events or a one-off event based regionally. Okay. Um, Potentially, um, or they'll do a global deal, which which has become kind of the rage, where you've got these you know enormous guarantees which are being negotiated in Europe and in North America for artists, uh, and then it's guaranteed and might be 200 dates internationally, you know, wow. across the, across the world, or 150 dates, or and that's that's a big responsibility and a, and a big liability in a lot of ways too. Well, I've got the insurance companies do pretty well for those kind of things, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big, 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 uh, big ticket money yeah. in, in the Lloyd's uh, market. Yeah, and then they'll they'll carve off a region potentially, and they might sell off, you know, Asia Pacific to a certain promoter, mm-hmm. or they might um, promote that themselves in the region, or they have someone that says, "I want to become a promoter. I'd love to be able to buy three dates in Mumbai or wherever it might be, or, or Dubai or Abu Dhabi or somewhere in between." Um, so they're just really trying to claw back, you know, the guarantee that they've obligated commercially to the artist, and then the venues kind of sit in a relationship with the promoter. So promoter in a region, um, you know, we'll then try and make sure that we kind of can secure that content in our building by cutting a commercial deal with them. And our deals, typically without getting into that too much, yeah. are, are typically a, a percentage of box office plus costs. Um, mm-hmm. So it's tend, that tends to be how we, we structure a deal. Um, so you, you share the upside. If there's upside, but um, if it's not going great, then everyone's in a similar kind of position. Yes, yeah, sure. okay. Um, so, yeah, that's, and, but there's all sorts of deals. You can do a flat guarantee on Venium. We did a bit of that in China um, because box office control was very much with the promoter in China. We typically tend to be wanting to control ticket volumes and ticket sales through our relationships. And, and um, you know, one of the, the key, key, Mitigating factors for us is making sure that we can control, you know, ideally box office funds where they end up in the security room. Um, so there's a, 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 a risk if it ends up somewhere else and someone yeah. decides to pocket that cash and go for a, a wonder something. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so look, I, I got here and we were growing the team, working with the ownership group, um, the construction team. We had a team dedicated in terms of the technical services to make sure that we got a building which met the brief. Um, that we could operate long term, knowing that we could, you know, work with promoters and, and, and acts and those that were engaging directly from a, a, a content point of view to make sure you could deliver events that we're going to work in the building. And um, we've got a fantastic building, you know. We've got it a, is a superb building. Yeah, a building which acoustically is almost unrivaled. Um, you know, we, yes, we are very much multi-purpose in, in design and construction, but with a core focus of, of music being, you know, our anchor tens in a lot of ways and a diversity of, of music types. 
And so, you know, we came into the market. Some challenges in terms of getting open. There's, you know, never, never an exacting science sure. about construction at times. Um, and then in that period from kind of arriving to when we opened it in June, you know, you know 2019, we were looking clearly at the commercial program, um, the relationship with Coca-Cola was established at that time, so Namrod's partner, then a whole lot of other founding partnerships, the Marriott Bonvoy team, working with Visa, um, <clears throat> you know, the guys from Book My Show, um, Marriott Bonvoy, you, you know, so there was a the whole, range. Really, whole, whole range like that. Um, and, and then on, on the flip side of that too is making sure that we could program content into the building that was going to work with those commercial partners, um, but also you know, be interesting and attractive for the people of Dubai. And that's, you know, you know we, we've probably talked about it a couple of times, not in, in this kind of forum, but, you know, you are building a modern day town hall when you build an arena. You know, it's, it's that kind of sense of, right, you, you need music's important, you need to be able to deliver that, you need to find a space that, that sport can work in from an indoor context. Okay. Um, the kind of non-event day activity in terms of corporate events are important when we hosted the, you know, Dubai Airport Scala um, dinner, you know, a year, a little over a year, a bit ago. Um, you know, you need to be able to deliver that type of content as well as everything in between. So design's important, but diversity of content's really important too. So look, we came out of the blocks pretty pretty strong once we got going. Um, you know, after kind of, are we opening? Are we going? Are we, are we in? You know, kind of making that, that decision to move forward and having confidence in terms of where we were construction, commercial and program. And it was interesting, you know, last February we were kind of sitting around after the Maluma show, which was on um, uh, Valentine's Day, you know, last year, and kind of posted a debrief with the team, and, and it was interesting conversation saying how, how good it felt to have kind of got to that point into a, what is probably more normal touring type of the year, or time of the year. Um, and we were feeling pretty pretty buoyant. We were starting to see some activity in China that was being cancelled. Um, there were some shows in Wuhan, ironically, that we were actually making some noise about why don't they play in our neck of the woods, not too far away in some respects. Um, and then within weeks we were closing up shop, yeah. you know, and putting putting pause on our operation and, and postponing shows that were locked in for, for you know, later in the year in 2020 and the rest of I won't say history, but, you know, devastating in terms of the disappointment because what was due to come online and looking forward to, anticipation-wise. Yeah, yeah, so anyways, you know, and I think it's, you do go through that when you open a building, you know, or or any kind of relationship in any industry, you know, there's that that euphoria of of getting going um, and kind of getting momentum in in the marketplace. And then it does, it flattens flattens out a little bit from an operational point of view and then you've got to, you know, keep it, keep it moving and then you get into that rhythm of events, pump out, pump in, event, bump in, bump out and, and making sure that you're a building that's busy because dark days are our, our nemesis. Of course, of course, of course. You've still, got, you've still got electricity bills, you've still got kind of those overheads that exist and so you better mm-hmm. having someone in there um, than, than, than nothing. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it's a disappointment in a lot of ways and, and really during that time we've seen, as we've all seen, you know, with opportunities that presented themselves, the market's kind of been encouraged, you know, we saw some activity through kind of November into January, last year to this, um, and, and gone a bit soft again now with some, some further restrictions that are in place, and we understand, you know, the nature of, of where they are at, but um, 
Do you see green shoots coming through that, like, thinking that potentially from, let's just say, the back end of next year, this year? Yeah. 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 Where there's kind of like, is that early planning and saying, well, if contingency allows us to be able to do X, Y, and Z, surely all over the place, people, promoters and yeah. venues are starting to pencil in some things potentially. Yeah, yeah they are. We are. Um, you know, we, we, one of the benefits, one of the, one of the challenges in this market is that the lead time has always been typically short. Yeah. Um, you know, you, and, and I was a little, that was one of the things that not caught me off guard, but was a little surprising here. Um, you know, in, in, in an Australian market or New Zealand or even China in some respects, you would, you could see six months to a year being a typical lead time for what we call a, a, a genuine international tour. Um, here, you know, you can, you can have a conversation and within a month, you know, it's on sale and happened. Yeah, you know, right. or, or six right. or eight weeks, which is there's a lot of one-offs out here. Yeah. You don't see part of like the, the natural move from, from say wherever it is. Let's just say Budapest or something. Yeah, and then and then and then coming here and then going off to Singapore and then going down to Australia. Yeah, it's that, that hasn't really happened. Yeah, so someone will fly in. They've come from. Eastern Europe, and then they fly off to Reading Festival or something. Like that. Yeah, it's exactly. No yeah. Rhyme or reason to what we call an actual touring. Sure. And that's a challenge, right? right? Yeah, it's a challenge, and it was as we were going through that cycle. But it's actually an opportunity yeah. on the on the flip side as we come out of, of COVID, you know, all these these kind of restrictive kind of periods, and so we've got people, or we see promoters here that, that actually are pretty nimble and can move quite quickly. Um, but you've got to try and attract the date and get the time. Look, there's artists that want to do it. Um, you know, they're, they're like empty buildings. They're, they're, they're not making money when, yeah. when they're, not, they're not on the road. And if you look at the, the music revenue model and how that's changed over a period of time from selling albums and making a ton of money through through that, that metric to, to online and, and downloadable and, and giga companies making probably the lion's share of, of the revenue around that music space, um, the artist has got to get out and do it. They've got to make money because it's their, it's their revenue you outright, you know, typically. Um, if you think with the, the advent of, of the local market becoming larger for live music, with our cousins down the road, with our cousins like yeah. an hour and a half down, the, you know, in a little short flight away, do you think we'll probably get to see and say, okay, well, we'll do their first, then we'll come to Dubai, and then we'll go onwards, or do you think it'll be, because I know there are challenges in terms of the of, of funds and availability and all of those kind of things, but also, actually, depending on, some may want to play here, but they may not want to play somewhere else. It's a, you know, it's a bit of a, a boiling pot, isn't it, around there, and, and there are challenges with that. Yeah, there are. Um, you know, as, as an operating company, Ace and Global, um, when we came into market, one of the key things is in terms of the communication with our, our owner and their ass, which is now Dubai Holding, because that's, that's changed over recent times um, in terms of you know, their merger. Um, you need multiple venues across a region to be able to amortize a tour. And to your point, Rex, you know, you, you, you really need to make sure that there can be a regional promoter that says, you know what, I'll take a guarantee on five dates. Yeah. Now I'll play one in, in Dubai at yeah. Coca Cola Arena, and I'll play one in the market down the road potentially, and I'll, I'll play one in, in Saudi and yeah. in, in Bahrain, and, and that gives me an opportunity to emphasize my costs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not these, what I call really. Probably slightly outrageous guarantees that have been provided to some artists because yeah. it's a one-off, and the nature of the one-off means you can't amortise across a greater run. Yeah. So I think that's that's as the market matures, we we think that's a really important next step. Um, okay, yes, there becomes potentially more competition, and if you look at it from a um, uh, municipality destinational tourism point of view, it's not 
not brilliant in some ways if you've got the same artist playing on your doorstep or across the region because you, it's hard to, to attract necessarily international visitation on the back of that. But but equally, I think the way things are moving, domestic domestic tourism is, is equally as important. You know, yeah. and, and keeping people in a market yeah. without going somewhere else is, is is part of that challenge too. So, and the ability to be able to play in the summertime, so both open sure. venues, that's a huge yeah. win, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we, we when we opened, it was you know it was the 14th of, of June, you know, with Maroon Five, but we'd had Russell Peters the week before. Um, but in terms of you know, at capacity of Maroon 5, it was warm. You know, It was right. a warm day outside, as you can imagine, in the middle of June, and you guys have been in the region for a long, long time, so you, you appreciate that. But, um, you know, people people got it. They were excited. Um, there was a great energy about it. And we've seen that through you know, other music events that we've had since. Um, obviously, you don't go opening doors at midday, um, you know, but... But neither do you have many artists that are awake and wanting to perform today, <laughs> today either. You know, so um, it does play into the hands. It does make it a lot more viable. You clearly, you need it in this part of the world. Um, and you know, it's about the touch points you can control being positive ones for people and trying to. Right, last thing you want to do is have a delay on doors because people are standing outside and, and looking, you know, beautiful in their regalia and mm. bit of a sweaty mess for the time to walk in. So. There's all those kind of elements that we've, we've tried to make sure that we create an experience which is positive. Okay, this time we probably don't get it right. Sure. But it's not to mean that there's not that intent and that desire to, to improve continually, you know. Um, and so that's that's in some ways been the journey of, of the, the, the project here in Dubai, you know, with the Coca-Cola Arena. It's taking that ambition, kind of delivering it from concept to reality and then kind of moving it forward to make sure it becomes actually, you know, part of people's thinking from an entertainment perspective. Um, we'll get back to that point. It's going to take a bit more time um, for us all, I think, but, you know, we've spent as much time as we'd like to spend reviewing policy, procedure, managing costs. Right. Um, you know, we've got a team that continues to work really hard. You know, we've got a family of partners that, that, are, that are there. They, they just want to have some certainty about, you know, when things can start moving back in the right direction and then, sure. you know, we'll pull the trigger and we'll, 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 go, we'll go again. Yeah. Has there, has there been any surprises, um, you know, obviously started Maroon 5, on uh, artists that A, you thought may have been more popular, or B, far more popular than what you thought would have been? Um, and that would and probably that'd be interesting in all the markets that you've, that you've been to. Yeah, there's always a surprise package somewhere along the way, right? I mean, um, yeah, I remember back in Auckland in 2008, it would have been Kings of Leon. You know, Kings of Leon had played out in New Zealand yeah. less than a year earlier than that. Um, they played to a theatre of about 3,000 people, I think. Maybe not quite sold out. Right. Within a right. year, they were back um, right. selling out, you know, back-to-back arena nights in Auckland, sure. um, doing crazy business at, at really respectable ticket pricing. You know, which I think is a really important part of yeah. the guarantee. If it's too high, you've got to then convert that into a ticket price, which is which is you know tough on people that are that are fans. Um, Lady Gaga opened for the Pussycat Dolls back in 2007 in Auckland. You know, right. a year later she was selling out arena shows. Less than less than a year, actually, yeah, she yeah. was selling out shows around the world. And so, you know, in those markets, that's probably two examples. Here, you know, Maroon Five probably could have done a second night. There was really strong interest. Um, it's about trying to find a date to back that up. And you know, we worked with the team that done events on on that show, and and, and they were they were great in terms of stepping in and. 
promoting it and Girish and his guys uh, did an incredible job of, of taking that event to market and we were you know and behind that supporting it and we're happy not to be the face of, of the, the publicity side but make sure that we get the content you know mm. um I tell you one thing that's interesting. I was speaking to a group of guys yesterday about how how prominent and how significant the Filipino audience has been here. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, in terms of actually getting in behind live events and, and particularly music and and that for me was was um, a little surprising. You know, in some ways, I probably didn't realise how how material that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so not that you can continually find content that's just going to satisfy one kind of demographic. Um, but is it, what, what is that? Is it more pop or is it more local local music? If it's got a catchy tune in it, okay. They like their rock music. I remember yeah. going up to a battalion. Yeah. I was doing some work mm. um, um, with the, the guys up there, and just been taken into the stadium and shown. They I mean, they have their whole setup there, and it was impressive. But the um, this is Metallica, by the way, mm. uh, and it was just extraordinary the amount of Fili- uh, Filipinos that were, were in the yeah. uh, in the audience. I, I'm guessing now, and I'm, this is probably about nine or ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I would think there were probably sixty percent, seventy percent Filipino. Yeah, I mean, it's like when they played in China. You know, Metallica's first first shows ever were in, in our building in Shanghai, Mercedes Benz, and, and this I make mean, you expect to be a Chinese audience, right? Yeah. But the, the that underswelled support for a band like that in China was was staggering, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think there's always surprises. Yeah, yeah. Leonard Cohen when he played in New Zealand, you know, just the the gravitas of of, mm-hmm. of him as a performer, right. um, you know. And, and 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 you always know that a show is popular when you, your phone starts to ring and people you haven't heard from for a, ah, a long yes. time yeah. uh, become very friendly again. And I hate to see how things are going. And, <laughs> I heard that a, a certain show was announced. Yes, and, and I apologise for that too, guy. Um, apologise for you <laughs> But but yeah. that's actually one of those funny things. Yeah. You're like, wow, okay. That's, um, well, if, that, if they're calling me, then they must be good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of my you know, my favourite aunts. I shouldn't say that. Um, she calls me, then I then I know it's it's, it's popular too, right? So um, yeah, there, there's always been surprise packages. I think on the on the reverse side about you know underwhelming. Uh, sales performance at times, we probably in our industry keep it pretty close shop, you know, because sure. you know, it's not in the owner's interest to start saying, you know, I do a call show that sold really poorly and we thought it was going to sound like oh, it's out of <laughs> okay, go on, mate. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do any numbers. Can you think of an event in the time that you've been involved where that stuck in your mind saying, that blew my socks off out of all these events that you've seen? Any particular one or two? That yeah, look, I think Marine Five here was pretty special. You know, right. there's obviously that kind of connection to the project sure. and seeing it, seeing the building have have mm. life, you know, have a soul. Because mm. um, up until then, you've got bricks and mortar, mm. and all of a sudden you, you give it a heartbeat. You brought right. people in it. You've got energy which you can't yeah. ever replicate in any other way. Mm. Um, Stevie Wonder in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder all my life. You know, trips down to Rotoria, a little country town where my father's final from, and we drive down there, and Stevie Wonder would do kind of three loops of the reverse cassette in and out and around again. And um, you know, I, I try not to be a fan, but I think equally we're all fans at times. Sure, and sure. there are moments where I think you've got to actually say to your team and the people, "Hey, you know what? It, it, you can't be robotic about your work because yeah. there's people that are coming to events that are totally engrossed. They might have been fans forever. It might be the first experience of the artist, mm-hmm. and and we've got." You know, privilege to be part of 
creating what's a, a positive impression. Now, we can't control the artist's mood or the artist's the artist kind of activity. Well, they're right, but, but you know, delivering on a rider is yeah. really important so you actually can create a positive atmosphere for them sure. to be at their optimal ability to perform well for their, their fans. But Stevie Wonder for me is, oh, you know, I was a fan. I got side of stage and yeah. kind of, you know, flashed my AAA pass to make sure I could get as close as I could and, and sat there and, um, and and took in probably 20 minutes, maybe a little more, um, of a show which was breathtaking, you know. Um, but it's actually really hard at times to be in a venue that you manage sure. and, and probably let your hair down, you know, yeah, so right. to speak. Um, it's it's typically been in, in other people's venues that I've probably enjoyed it more because you can appreciate it as a, as a, as a music fan, and, you know, and there's been a number of those occasions which... You know, I've been really fortunate to see a lot of shows over the years, and hopefully, fortunate to see a lot more in the future. And yeah, um, it's it's been it's been the ones sometimes that have been unexpected that have been you know totally surprising, which have been great. Well, that's the great thing, isn't it? It's the unexpected which makes it exciting and interesting. Our yeah. producer was quickly, I say, our producer, the guy at the end of the table, Ted. He was um, he was gesturing. I don't know, are we running out of time? Yeah. Or? Yeah, you've got plenty of time. Okay. Uh, James, you've got to speak into the microphone, mate. Yeah. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yell at that mic, James. Yeah. It's never been a problem before. Okay. No, but um, yeah, I'm finding it really interesting. And, and, and obviously, it's difficult to talk about when we're going to be back online because no one knows. But oh, look, we're, 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 we continue to be optimistic, right? I mean, I think the, the, the industry will, will move quickly when the opportunity is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we need to give people comfort about Absolutely. activity, being in places of mass gathering. Uh, you know, as a company, we've spent a lot of time on this um, hygiene kind of preventative program called Venue Shield in terms of how we manage that relationship mm-hmm. between the artists or the higher-up, their teams, suppliers, you know, fans, yeah. our, our, our team to make sure they're safe. And, and that's been, you know, successful today, but it'll keep being important forever. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we're going to forget this in a hurry. Um, and it's going to shape our business for a long, long time. Um, mm-hmm. But is there demand there? I think so. Um, you know, people that, that are probably a little over Zoom calls, um, yeah. as great as they've been and as important as they've been to keep us all connected, um, we're, we're social animals, right? You know, we, we, we need that engagement. We need, yeah. I think, that social kind of togetherness um, and a kind of a unified cause, be it sport, be it music, be it whatever it might be that tickles the fancy, you know? So, yeah. um, no, we, 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 we're ready to go when it's time to go. It's just kind of getting to that point where there's comfort from a consumer perspective, from a promoter perspective to carry risk and, and municipality to have comfort in terms of, you know, moving through what is this kind of testing period into you know, vaccination and, you know, the aspirations clearly that to have the UAE at the forefront of, mm-hmm. of a world that's vaccinated for probably most of the market. So yeah. that will cause interesting opportunities sure. when... The only place you might be able to go for a period are a number of different, you know, nations that, that aren't linked to our point. We might have strange tours yeah. bouncing right. around the world for a yeah. period of time, so it gets kind of more continuity across different regions. So, yeah. Well, if you get an advantage here, then bring it on. I mean, mm. people will be looking forward to it. I mean, I've we always used to go to stuff, but I think the fact that we, we miss it so much has become yeah. even more mm. relevant to us that you know, given the, the safety factor of letting lots of people becoming vaccinated in you know, a not too long a future, then uh, that'll be something that will be really appetizing for us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's something we'll, we'll 
So, Guy, yeah, we had a, um, a call from uh, a question from Instagram, a uh, long-time listener, uh, Kiki Wilson. First time caller. First time caller from uh, Auckland. Uh, he was asking if you could tell us what, what was the, in the infamous back bar at the Marist Club Rooms in Auckland, um, what went on there? There was a gathering of great rugby minds often on the Saturday night after a mm. tough weekend of rugby. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating back to the times that Kiki refers to, very good rugby player, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had a, a, a Marist senior team that was the Brook Brothers, uh, Zinzan, Marty, Robin. Um, you know, you had uh, JK, Bernie McHale, yep. Terry Wright. Um, you know, you had a, a, a whole swag of All Blacks playing club rugby all the time. And the back bar was an opportunity to kind of mix and mingle with a lot of those guys. There was obviously a lot of clubs, club swords that would be there. Um, you know, it was a kind of a meeting of all things Marist, with Marist Club. And, but did, um, they, did they play much club rugby? They played a fair chunk of it back then. Yeah. So they would play Auckland. They'd play Auckland. You know, but they, the club season, Auckland would come in after the club season. Oh, of course. Um, you know, so this is in the, this is in the 90s. Yeah. Um, so sort of April to... Uh, and then they'd play, you know, right. there might have been some Super 10s or something like that happening at some point, or, but there was certainly not Super Rugby, which was dominating the South Pacific Championship. Yeah. Not yet, yeah, I don't think. Uh, but Terry Wright, it's before that. Yes, yeah, this would have been in the you know nineties, late eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's, there's a heap of things. Yeah, there's there's actually yeah, there's a there's a guy on Facebook who's been putting these old NPC yeah. videos on. Man, it's fantastic. Yeah. Old eighties, eighties, nineties stuff. Well, Bloodbath for that played Harbour. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
find their way back in a lot of ways, which is exciting. There's some great talent in that team. And the challenge at Auckland's always been in that super rugby model, retaining enough of your talent Mm. in in market. And actually, you know, you look at the black and red on the wall, Mm. Canterbury have done an extraordinary job of taking players from out of their region and Mm. and really bringing them into that, here's your role, here's, we're going to have some guys that have got some flair out wide, we're going to have maybe a number eight that's got a bit of flair, but the guts of the team's going to be able to be really efficient at their core business and, and, you know. And and such a good good youth group coming through, so when they do actually hit the, the 15, you don't realise that they're just part of the part yeah, of the slot in. Slot yeah. Up. yeah, and they've got yeah. you know they've got capability to feel get out there and just play your game because mm-hmm. the guy next to you is going to play his and absolutely you know you'll be okay once you get the ball. So it all, it, it all starts this week. It does. Mm-hmm. It does. I'm hopeful that we can go one better this year and yeah, knock over those guys down south. But they'll be tough again. They're always tough down south. Always tough. Always tough down south. Always tough. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Best of luck with the yeah. future. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming on board. It's been fascinating listening to you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. All the best. Yeah. Bye.